Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast saying fuck ice and dismantle all borders. Today we have Laura. So today we are joined by some really incredible guests. They're all involved with doing really amazing stuff on the ground in their area. I'm going to have them introduce themselves and talk a little bit more about what they've been up to related to immigration and ICE as well as where they're located. But first of all, thank you all so much for joining us on Season of the Bitch. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yay. So Marge, if you want to go first, go for it. Yeah, my name is Margaret McLaughlin. I'm on the steering committee of Metro DC Democratic Socialists of America. Our migrant justice working group has been going since January. We have been focusing on the revolving door of DHS and ICE officials that have at one time been administrators of these disastrous policies and then have gone into lobbying. So that is who we've been focusing on. And it has been, you know, it's only been going on for about six months, but we are planning some big actions soon. And with everything else that's going on, you know, we're adapting our uh, tactics as well to, to, you know, show solidarity with uh, migrant justice organizations in the region and nationally. Awesome. Thanks. Kristen? Yes. So my name is Christian Hernandez. I am the co-chair for DSA North Texas and uh, our counties cover Dallas County, which is kind of the main city that we're focused in. Uh, And then we have neighboring Denton and Collin County. So we're a pretty big area in North Texas. And we have a lot of immigration activity going on in Dallas. I've mentioned before on like a previous national call that Dallas is leading in the number of deportation arrests in the country. Mm. And uh, we do have a big presence of just like ICE officials. And so for us, it was really important to have a thriving and active uh, racial justice working group that really focused on uh, immigration and police brutality. And I come from a background in organizing uh, with respect to immigration specifically. I was a member and on the leadership of the North Texas Dream Team, which is a local grassroots organization that did a lot of direct action when it came to uh, working around getting securing DACA back when the fight happened in the early uh, 2000s. And since then, had been doing a lot of uh, DACA work specifically with getting people to learn how to fill out their applications for themselves, um, raising funds so that money wasn't an issue because it's like $495 each time you apply every two years and really kind of creating a process that was both empowering, but also getting people looped in into getting involved in their community. And then we also just, Texas is a very big hotbed for bigot politicians. And so we had a SB4 fight not too long ago that we were very directly involved in with getting our local municipalities and involved in in the lawsuit against the what we call the show show me your papers law Mm. and and as far as DSA we really are pretty new to the immigration framework I should say but um, we have a lot of people that are really willing to get their hands dirty and involved in in the process and so we've been doing ICE accompaniments um, as that, as people have come forward and asked to be supported when they go and check in with ICE. And so we did a few of those with some local organizations. Uh, and so we're really focused right now on kind of training our individual members so that they're aware of like the immigration snake, as I call it, or web of just, of, it's a very convoluted subject. And even for, for a lot of us who've been doing this for a while, like it's some, we learn something new every day. And so getting DSA members confident, trained in like what it looks like, but also just collaborating with a lot of the organizations that have been doing this for a long time. Thank you. Olivia, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. My name is Olivia. I'm the co-chair of the Portland chapter of DSA. Our chapter is involved in the ongoing occupation at the ICE facility um, here in Portland, Occupy ICE PDX, uh, that has shut down the ICE office 
Um, the ICE office here in Portland has been shut down and barricaded for five days now. We're also working on targeting our elected officials at the city and state level to stop cooperation with ICE. Whew, y'all are doing a lot, a lot. It's amazing. So for starters, some people, and we hope at least generally not among the left, but I've been seeing a lot, um, or even like people have been commenting on Buffalo DSA's Instagram posts like, why would you want to abolish ICE instead of reform ICE? Because in Buffalo, at least, we have just like such a strong lib faction. And so why do y'all think it's so important for us to abolish this institution? So part of the reason that we moved from, I felt, because a lot of our DSA messaging was defund ICE at the very beginning. And I'm really glad that we've moved to a more strong and effective, I feel, stance on ICE. We've seen, especially in the realm of immigration, that there's this constant talk about, we need immigration reform, we need comprehensive immigration reform, Um, we need DACA, then now we need DAPA. And so it's kind of been like this very incremental fight for rights constantly. And a lot of the messaging has been some of the most frustrating part about working in, in this realm and working within the movement. Not so much because these things haven't led to some small wins and led to gains, but because they, depending on the administration or even just from month to month, it's been very easy to lose any gains that have happened. Uh, We've seen, obviously, with this current administration being somewhat more openly hostile and somewhat less less willing to hide (laughs) the racist um, motivations for wanting to make changes in immigration policy. But it's a lot of the people that are in the movement that started off in the movement since, you know, the, the, the one of the first fights for the Dream Act in the early 2000s. People are tired and, and they're tired of having to make, you know, these small wins and then losing everything and having to start from scratch. And abolishing ICE is the only solution to ending the complete separation of families, to ending the terrorizing of our communities. ICE has a huge ability to create fear. And this fear is really what's kept a lot of people out of out of this movement. A lot of the people that should be at the forefront, not because, you know, they should be at the forefront, I should say, because they're the ones that are the most directly affected. Mm. But we understand that, you know, if you don't have legal status in this country, even if you're only like a, a, a legal permanent resident, there are always going to be consequences to getting involved. And so uh, with somebody that, uh, for me, coming in as an ally, as a citizen, but, you know, also as a brown woman, it it gives me somewhat of a unique opportunity with privilege because, you know, no one looks undocumented um, to be able to use that privilege and, and kind of take on a little bit of the burden of of having direct confrontations, say, with ICE or confrontations with the police. But we really want to get more people involved, especially people who don't have any protections. Dreamers have have shown a bunch of awesome, courageous movements. You you see the undocumented, unafraid. That um, was something that was revolutionary, and just that people were like, we're no longer gonna stop asking for our rights because we're afraid of getting deported. And you know, these were these were people that were that are young people that are mm-hmm. students. And um, but then there was this next needed fight for their parents, who were the people who originally, you know, came to this country and have no legal protections. There's not any type of a program like DACA for for parents um, specifically. And so when you take some something, an institution, an agency like ICE that has increasingly shown no remorse for any type of actions, they've pulled children from hospital beds. They've arrested moms during their doctor visits. And, you know, CBP uh, uh, Border Patrol has slashed water bottles that humanitarian groups have put out because they have no regard for actual humanity. There's no bargaining with them. There's no, this is where we'll stop. They've seemed to have no line that they won't cross. And so with an agency that seems to be really petty, they move their tactics and they react as activists and organizers move and try to confront that type of power, it's important just to get rid of that source altogether because Mm -hmm. there's no way that they're ever just going to stop. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember that ICE didn't exist until recently. It was created after the creation of the 
Department of Homeland Security in 2003. You know, it's not something that has been around forever. It's very easy to imagine life without ICE. It wasn't that long ago that that was a reality. And I also just want to echo the sentiment that, yeah, ICE is a terrorist organization. That is how it functions. It only serves to terrorize immigrant communities and delegitimize their, like, humanity. So from a socialist standpoint as well, I think we have to look at who profits from this because there is a profit in this. Think about who profits from the detention of immigrants, who profits from telling low-wage workers that it's migrants' fault, their wages are low, it's migrants who are taking their jobs, so we have to round them up, who profits from destroying those migrants' countries and forcing them to leave in the first place. They are not doing it for the sake of doing it. Someone is benefiting from these policies. And it's it's the ruling class who manufacture the weapons, who own the private prisons and detention centers, who own private security firms that ICE has contracts with. It's really working on BDS work that sort of got me in this sort of mindset of like figuring out who is profiting from the terrible policies that our neoliberal capitalist government enacts because someone is always profiting. So it's very important that not only do we fight to abolish ICE, but that we also bring to the conversation a socialist lens. Absolutely. Definitely. I just want to quickly add, you know, on top of everything, you know, talking about the suite of legislation in 2003 that started DHS, that started ICE, that started the Patriot Act, those all should be abolished. Everything should be gone from that suite of legislation in our government. ICE has proven time and time again that it is unable to maintain internal controls of the people that it employs and its vetting process. These people have shown to, they've been shown to, you know, abuse prisoners, abuse children, and beyond, you know, these internal situations, the larger, the larger idea of an agency like ICE, it is to terrorize people. And I think that the interesting, this switch that has, that has, you know, been flicked this week that we see centrists and liberals starting to come on our side to to actually sign on to this call to abolish ICE. It's interesting how the narrative of separating families has it's been driven to people's hearts, and it's 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 nice to see, but this has always been happening. Mm. It hasn't been happening in the same in the same manner as you know with CBP and ICE. But the U.S. has been involved in Central American and South American governments for decades, Mm -hmm. displacing and separating families. So this is just an iteration that we're seeing. It's an iteration of nationalism, of white supremacy that I think a lot of people are starting to realize is cancerous. It's dangerous. And we need to get rid of that ideology in the way that we govern our society. And to just really add on that point with, you know, liberals and others that are kind of new to the fight, really pushing this, you know, keep our families together. It really dismisses a lot of the people who've lived in mixed status families who Mm -hmm. have family in other countries for a long time. I mean, my family is a mixed status family. When my grandmother passed away, my aunt, um, you know, lives lives in the United States, and she can't go back to Mexico. And so she was unable to attend my grandmother's funeral, which hit her really hard because she was really close to my grandmother. And that might not seem like a big deal to some people. But that's the reality. That's a very common occurrence that happens is that People are already separated through this border. And that's where I kind of lead on this idea that borders are violent because that type of trauma sits with you that you have to make the decision between do I uproot my entire life and and go back to my my country that I was born in because I want to, you know, see my family for the last time, possibly the last time. Mm-hmm. Um, or do I stay and just have to live with that regret, live with that remorse for the rest of my life? And that's not a, a, a decision that any human should have to make. We should be able to move freely. We should be able to be with our families. And and I think that's what's important. That's what's missing. That nuance is missing from the keep families together conversation is the fact that for a lot of people, this is a reality. This is how it's always been. 
And until we have a deeper conversation about the really the root causes of immigration, the root causes of why people come to the United States from other countries and and really identify those in a in a more clear way. I, I don't think we'll ever have to this is abolish ICE is, is one of the first steps, I should say. But you know, families have been separated for the longest time. And I think for us for us bringing in a new perspective is really important so that we don't lose people at that at that one point, but really take the conversation further. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I just wanted to highlight like just like the most like basic overview of some of that imperialist history, just in case people aren't super familiar. The United States has really interrupted a lot of the direct democracy that has was developed um, during the 20th century in several Latin American countries um, and has toppled democratically elected officials, most of them being either socialist or uh, socialist like who were democratically elected and additionally we have an organization in the united states it was called the school for the americas but now it's called something else which i'm completely forgetting at the moment but it's a training facility where u.s officials train torture techniques and other military techniques to these international leaders and those people who were trained particularly in torture techniques were all throughout Latin America creating mass atrocities all throughout the 20th and currently uh, in the 21st century throughout those regions not to mention all that that has affected in the Middle East as well but there are so many reasons and that just is only like the militaristic reason there's also a ton of like pushes because of capitalism and globalized capitalism and the ways in which like different communities were completely changed and altered due to our um, globalized capitalist system. So there are a million reasons why people are being pushed out of their countries. um, And a lot of it stem from the United States itself. Yeah, it's not even just militaristic. It's like, there are so many more insidious ways that we've done it. Just like, like very briefly, like with Allende's Chile, like, Mm. Milton Friedman and the University of Chicago economist, like economics school, he trained multiple economists to go to Chile to basically sow discord in a democratically elected socialist government, which ended up assassinating Allende. Um, Then this is, this is, you know, you could say this about many different other countries in, in Latin America. It's not it's not just explicitly militaristic and, you know, training troops. It can be insidious and socioeconomic as well. We have our hands dirty in so many different ways the United States does. It's really atrocious. And to, to think about the whole weight of it, it, is, it can be overwhelming, I think, to a lot, of, a lot of people who are just coming to the left. But it's an important thing to to learn about and to, to really feel because this thing that's happening at the border isn't just, it's not just a current event. It is a culmination of decades. Mm. Yeah. And on that point too, in Guatemala, for instance, I actually got to go this past year and I stayed with a small community, the Santa Anita community, and they're a bunch of ex revolutionary fighters. They fought during the armed conflict which, again, was a result of American imperialism. It was a result of specifically uh, America with, like, the um, United Fruit Company coming in and deciding, hey, like, we want to take some of this land. Um, This was essentially a fight at the bare bones over bananas and the production there. And created, they toppled a Democratic leader. They created this um, anti-communist fear. They associated him with with communism and and created just a lot of using public radio, doing a lot of red baiting there. And then this led to to a 10 year civil war over something as, you know, you kind of bring bring it down to something as as trivial as bananas. And for these these fighters, I, I felt this extreme sense of guilt, you know, being American and coming in. And these are people that live very humbly and having them tell our tell their story and having them talk about the fact that they were 
fighting and they were raising children, you know, in the wilderness because they they fought for something that they believed in. And and, you know, grappling, I, I think for me, especially being somewhat relatively new to the left, um, grappling with this guilt of of somehow not knowing about this beforehand and also just like being American. And, you know, one of one of the guys that I talked to, he was like, well, you know, you're also Mexican and Mexico helped us out a lot. And I'm like, it, it doesn't make me feel any better about that situation, because I know there's a lot of people um, that when they're confronted with this type of information, they could very easily just like dismiss it and their guilt might lead them to um, thinking that it's not as important to care about what happens in other countries. And I think it's also really over, like we were saying, it was really overwhelming to have to realize that whether we want to or not, whether we're aware of it or not, we're complicit in the suffering of so many people in other countries and it's it's a lot to to internalize. It's a lot to like make reality, and also a lot for us to try to figure out. Like, well, so what do we do about it? And I think that's what's really important about what Meg was saying, especially with identifying the sources of power, identifying who directly is profiting from um, these types of policies, from these decisions, and confronting those power makers or those decision makers, and and getting rid of them. For sure. Thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me, y'all. So each of you kind of identified what your primary focus is in in your respective region. Um, And I was curious as to what have you seen be successful, what has been unsuccessful, and possibly what have been some of the biggest challenges? I think what has been most successful for Metro DC DSA is um, making sure that everyone is prepared and tr- trained up before we do an action. And we're very deliberate in what we do. Every action that we usually take, I know that the Nielsen action this past week, that was an exception. They usually take four to six weeks. We choose a target, we research them, we go through SEC filings, we go through open secrets filings on you know, who they've contributed to politically. And we try to compile like a dossier on this person who has profited off of deportations in some manner, right? Like either they have been an appointed leader of DHS or ICE, or they were at one point and are now running private prison corporations such as uh, Core Civic, which more people know them by the name uh, Corrections Corporation of America, because they have been in the news for many, many years for unjust practices. They're very bad. They have very poor conditions in their prisons. But these are the people that don't see that. These are the people that are in Washington. They're appointed by an administration, whichever administration it is, be it Democratic or Republican. And when the opposite administration comes in, they are prepared. They you know, they leave and then they go to their cushy lobbying job where they make $400,000 a year, taking their ex-co-workers out to lunch to try and get nice, big, cushy con- um, contracting gigs for their company. And this, these, you know, billions of dollars that are in contracts that are coming from our federal budget that are going to these private prisons that are dangerous, ill-supervised, not audited, and that have been a terror to families. That's what we want to try and bring to light. So being, you know, very aware of who we are going to to expose. And it is this, it is an exposition of this insidious revolving door that happens in the DC area. And I think that that's something that we can bring to this because we don't have a nice detention facility quite near us. I think the closest one is about an hour and a half out of DC, the biggest one at least. So, you know, talking about this structural administrative way that our federal government normalizes detention and dehumanization of, of immigrants and immigrant families. What's been unsuccessful is the explanation of this revolving door um, from federal, you know, appointed 
federal appointee to lobbyist and back again over and over. It's a long and convoluted story for many people, but it, it is so it's repeated so many times by so many people across the board. It's bipartisan. There are so many, you know, Democratic lobbyists who are profiting off of private prisons. This is not just a, a Republican thing. So getting the message out, I think, of this specific area that we're trying to expose has been difficult. And then just just the normal thing that I think a lot of, you know, socialist organizers have to deal with, and that's, you know, privacy and security of our members and of our information. So we're working to get our operation security up to snuff, especially after this past week. Mm-hmm. It is it's no joke how how much these fascists want to come after you. Yeah, I wanted to, in case people aren't aware, which like you must be living under a rock if you're not aware. But so Metro DC DSA confronted um, Nielsen in a Mexican restaurant while she was eating dinner, yelling shame, among other things that were like very targeted, clearly very informed. And it got a lot of press. So much so that I ended up seeing you on CNN Live, which is like, what? What even happened? So I think it's it's intense because I don't think any of us in some ways are really prepared to deal with if something catches fire like that. Like we're not necessarily trained in that way. We're trained to do these mobilizations or we're trained in very specific ways. And then when something like that happens, I'm sure... Like, I can only imagine that it was like an extremely overwhelming experience as well. It was. Yeah. And just really quick, like I was we have done some minor press stuff, but the the CNN, I was assuming that somebody from CNN would be maybe a little bit, you know, sympathetic to our cause. But then she asked me, like, what do you what do you expect to do with these people? Like, like, like it was she was awful. Yeah, it was very bizarre. She asked questions like, well, first of all, she called them illegal immigrants and so, which like for me, I'm just like, just stop talking at that point. But also like, <laughs> like, just stop. like that's the just end stop. of the set. That's it. <laughs> but she said things like, well, don't you think we need to do something to help them? And I I was just like, what do you mean by that question? And you were just like so poised. And she just I everyone should go and look up this this ridiculousness of this woman just kind of being in shock that you would uh, suggest that ice should be abolished. It was very hard for me to not say that I wanted to abolish all borders on CNN. Um, (laughs) Very difficult. It's kind of amazing. I was like sitting there at work on my lunch break, like with my hands, like in my mouth, like, Oh my God. (laughs) It was amazing. Well, it's um, also something that I think you don't expect someone in the media to really have this like strong stance of where it sounds almost biased. At right. least in my experience yeah. talking to the media, they've been able to they ask, you know, very open ended questions like, why are you here? What do you want type of thing? Sure. And to, to see because I, you know, I got to see it and just to see this like very obvious disdain and this language that you really only tend to hear from people on the right. I actually heard that. Uh, I was at the Texas Democratic Convention this past weekend and I, you know, someone came up to us and I'm not sure what their political affiliation was, but they were guests at the Democratic Convention and they grilled me for like 30 minutes. And one of the things that they said was, well, what are we going to do about those people? And just having just this weird, like, what are you talking, you know, and it's hard to not want to like laugh in their faces Um, but for me, at least from the beginning, because I, I I will admit at, you know, even a year ago, even hell, like two months ago, any type of that type of a confrontation, I'd be very angry and would want to immediately dismiss that person. Um, but you know, uh, this past weekend I was also wearing like a fuck ice sticker and that drew a lot of attention because Dallas is also just like a very big respectability type of city to where, you know, like, oh, using profanity as violence, but not, you know, locking people up in cages. And so having, having to have like people trained in being able to not just like stay calm, but also explain in a way that doesn't seem like we're being condescending to the people we're explaining things to. 
I think really throws off the people that are asking those questions because I tend, I think they tend to see people on the left as like, you know, all college educated and all just like wanting to do like the zinger Mm. and, you know, the hot take type of thing. But for me, like kind of in growing in my capacity to, to inform other people, it's been really much keeping it focused on the fact that like we need more people in this movement and not less. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, just being able to explain our points very clearly, I think tends to surprise people and hopefully, you know, sits with them. I think hopefully people seeing the interview will kind of see that, hey, we're not like these weird people who don't know what we're talking about, but that we really have a, a clear set of demands and are going to fight for those demands, you know, by any means necessary. Absolutely. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to speak to what has been successful and unsuccessful here in Portland. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously the occupation of the ice facility here in Portland has been successful in shutting down ice temporarily. Like they're barricaded. They cannot get in there. We made a demand of the mayor to not allow the city cops to evict the occupation. And he has ceded to that demand for now. Mm. Um, I think making specific concrete demands of elected officials is a good strategy in conjunction with the momentum of the occupation, because obviously the occupation is not a permanent solution. So we released a list of demands to Portland City Council, including establishing an office of immigrant rights, um, which was recommended to them by the sanctuary city task force that they themselves established, Mm. um, and they haven't done it. Fully funding immigrant legal defense services was also part of those recommendations. They haven't done that. Withdrawing from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a task force that both the Portland police and ICE participate in. And, And this is a city that calls itself a sanctuary city. And not letting the Portland police cooperate with the Department of Homeland Security in both evicting the camp of ICE and in anything related to ICE going forward. Um, And we are planning on taking over their city council meeting on Wednesday, regardless of whether or not they make space for us on the agenda. I think a challenge to the occupation is that it can also also be an inconvenience to immigrants who need to go there to check in. Like Mm -hmm. ICE has not has not communicated. They said that they contacted people to cancel and reschedule their appointments. But that is a lie. They have not communicated to them that they were closed. So people have shown up and are obviously confused. Um, And the people running the occupation have set up a relief fund for those people who maybe have to miss work for their appointment that they didn't even get to have. And they have translators on site to explain what's going on. And they've coordinated rides to the ICE facility in Tacoma. But it is a challenge. And we do need to be mindful of minimizing inconvenience to the communities that we are trying to work to protect. Absolutely. That um, actually makes me kind of want to like skip the next piece and ask if y'all have any advice for folks who want to do something but aren't sure where to start or how to make meaningful action and Christian I noticed your tweet about like nervousness or backlash or about how some things can particularly affect community that is already in such a state of possibly being unsafe or or you know obviously being marginalized in such an intense way um, and so how can how can folks avoid that or be intentional about their demonstrations in that way? So part of that is being in direct communication with local on the ground grassroots organizations that you know are doing the work or that other people know that are doing the work. I think part of, you know, what every chapter should really be doing as they start up or as they start going into doing different types of work, specifically within the realm of immigration is finding out, you know, who these other groups are and and how they work. But I think also even just like their limitations, because there are a lot of groups that are very specific in like what they do. And they're very good at that one thing, which is amazing. And, you know, we should respect that work and um, really kind of go in as a how can we help? Or, you know, even just understanding that some of them might be nonprofits, and they might have limitations as far as the types of direct action that they can do the types of Uh, mobilizations that are possible for them. But a lot of them are very willing to, you know, kind of just relay that information and then, you know, kind of turn their backs a little bit to what's being done, but they're supporting it. They just can't outwardly support it because of, you know, funding or, or whatever type of reasons that they might not be able to do it. And, um, but it's, it's action that's sanctioned by them. And I think that's also really important depending on, you know, the demographics of your chapter or even just like the size or how much power you've built in your city. And I think also understanding that within 
the immigrant movement, there is not necessarily like a consensus as far as what to do or how to do it. Um, Mm. There's a lot of organizations here that, you know, say they do a lot of good work for immigrants, but they also like invite cops into safe spaces, into churches specifically. And for a lot of us who really see that ICE and cops go hand in hand, it's, it's troublesome because you start building this false sense of security with law enforcement and knowing that the majority of deportations resulted from some type of interaction with the police mm. because of those types of collaborations, it's troubling. And it makes me nerve. The nervousness that I guess um, I tweeted about was a lot of because somewhat of like the revolving door, but really also just like how everything is connected in mm. the sense that ICE is a very reactionary agency. They've gone rogue countless times and they definitely like adapt. I kind of see them as like this virus that they, you try one thing and you can't use that tactic anymore because they've learned from it and they move on to something else. And that's what makes them, I think, also such a, such an insidious force because you don't really know like what their limit is. And so for a lot of that, it's also making sure that we have somewhat of a larger strategy in place. Um, I think it's really important that we do things even statewide, that uh, statewide we kind of are aware of where the detention facilities are, whether your local law enforcement and what law enforcement agencies throughout the state have existing agreements with immigration, whether they're profiting off of filling beds, whether they have a policy of informing immigration when somebody's being released because that's kind of their way out mm. of like saying, oh, we don't honor, you know, voluntary detainer requests, but we're also going to let everyone know that, hey, we're, we release prisoners at this time, wink, wink, wink. And a lot of agencies get around, you know, saying that we don't collaborate with ICE by doing things like that. And so being very aware of like how that's working in your city and then also on a statewide level, because part of my fear was if we start pushing this, okay, we, we end up successfully closing down this one detention center say in Houston, Houston has a big presence, has a big thriving chapter there. If we throw, if we throw down and get that one closed, what if they start moving everyone to this other facility? And then that facility doesn't have say a local DSA chapter or doesn't even have any local immigration uh, organizations because a lot of the rural areas in our state don't really have anyone that is helping or working on those issues. Um, and if they do, they're very, very small. And, you know, for, for us with the, my work with the dream team, we've had to travel out to Amarillo, which is about six hours away from, from my home city. Mm. Texas is very big (laughs) in case, in case I haven't mentioned it, uh, Texas is huge. And so, you know, having to travel six hours to, to go and deliver like just this one service, let alone, I can't even imagine that they'd have anyone out there that would know how to, you know, shut down a detention center without anybody else's help. Mm. And so I think it's also really important that we coordinate on a larger scale and make sure that we are giving support to either other chapters or other organizations that might not have as many people or might not have as many resources so that we can confront this kind of all at once And it's not just like a shifting, like, okay, now we have to go and focus on this area because we didn't just do a more unified attack. And so I think that that's something that we have to really keep in mind is that we are dealing with a ever-changing monster of sorts. And we really need to have as much communication between chapters, between organizations and, and kind of take a take a step back and, and analyze things and how how things are or aren't working and not being afraid to change our tactics. And I mean, I guess that's like organizing 101. But sure. I think with with a lot of people, especially with DSA growing so exponentially over the past year, organizing background and and we tend to kind of want to stick to this one plan. But, you know, part of being an organizer is making mistakes and being like, oh, shit, I fucked up. Like, let me do something else. <laughs> and, and like letting go of that ego is so important to, to being able to be successful in any type of campaign, but especially in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I just, w- I want to reiterate that what Christian said, like, 
the civil society around migrant justice work and, and immigrants' rights, they have a community. They talk to each other. And if the if your chapter wants to get involved in that work, it is really important that you reach out and you become a part of that community. I think what Christian said specifically about like a lot of these organizations want to do bigger things, more louder things, more things that'll, you know, create a bigger splash, but they're worried about their funders. They're worried about other things that organizations that have staff and funders that they have to worry about that. We can serve as an outlet to do some of those more peripherally, not dangerous, but like a little bit more out there and questioning the very nature of like the wholesale nature of what we're working with. It's really important that we have these discussions with these organizations because they have ideas. And this is a lot. And I'm sorry to bring up something that is totally outside of um, immigrants' rights, but How that's what you. we've done. <laughs> that's what we've done with our tenants' work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've reached out to a lot of our the local tenants' rights organizations and we discovered a gap in the system that we've been able to help out with. And a lot of the people that work for tenants' rights organizations volunteer on the side with us to do the things that they can't do in their, you know, nine to five day job. We have that capacity because we're a volunteer organization. We're doing this on our own time. We're not beholden to anyone or anything we're dem- we're democratically accountable and that but that doesn't mean dem- just internally democratically accountable it also means accountable to your community and the organizations in your community. Yeah, I work at a local organization that supports immigrants and refugees, a, a nonprofit and it's totally the same story. They like cannot they cannot be radical. They just can't. So it's good to like know what's going on from working there and bring that knowledge to the stuff that we can do in DSA because like you said we're not beholden to anyone. We're not afraid to step on people's toes. We can make a splash and not have to worry about our funding getting pulled. And also, again, I want to stress like to people who are looking for how to, like where to start, figuring out who profits, like look at the contracts that your city and state have, what activities ICE is doing in your city and your state, and who is allowing them to do that, um, and then put pressure on your elected officials to make it stop. I'm from Ohio, and Ohio has been in the news for two huge immigration raids recently. And some of those people are being held in the county jail in Youngstown. They should be organizing in Youngstown so that the county does not cooperate with ICE and allow ICE to hold people in their jails. ICE has a contract with G4S, so does the city of Portland and our transit system here. Um, So pressuring our city to end that contract, pressuring the mayor, who is the police commissioner, to end activities that allow the cops to share information with ICE, which are like specific contracts, specific activities, Um, doing that research and like figuring out where you can apply pressure beyond just protesting at ICE is super important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think part of it is also just like knowing that this type of stuff that's going on, I know that protests and rallies are really like feel good type of stuff. And it's the first natural inclination that anybody has. And often when I talk to people that aren't familiar with with anything that I do, I tell them, you know, I'm an organizer and they're like, oh, so you protest all the time. Or even my parents sometimes will be like, okay, who are you going to go yell at today? And it's also like, that's not even the half of it. And I, I think part of it is that we really need to move people. Yes. Like let people protest and rally if that's what they really want to do. But then also we want people to be able to build community, to build power so that they're confronting power in ways that they haven't previously thought of. And we really have to work hard to create this alternative of only protesting or only rallying, but making other types of confrontation acceptable. We've seen, you know, yes, yelling people out of a restaurant, like that's worked, but people are also like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm really uncomfortable with like not letting people like eat in a restaurant. And so we have to try to, you know, kind of break some barriers there with, with letting people think beyond like what is socially acceptable for activism Mm -hmm. and really like go beyond it to like what is actually going to make some change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been kind of amazing to even start to see some of the like more radical representatives be like, 
no one should feel safe if they hold those opinions because those opinions are really messed up. And I think that that is what the sentiment needs to be. And again, safe in what way, right? Like no physical violence came to them, of course. And it's like you just don't have the right to feel comfortable because your opinion is fascist and xenophobic and not we, we can't allow that. Yeah. I, I wanted to wrap up with a question about do y'all have any organizations or groups that folks should be more aware of who are doing this work? We can link to all the organizations or anything like that or ways that people can get involved or different things that people should be aware of in the description of the podcast as well. Um, I want to give a shout out to the Portland Immigrant Rights Coalition here in Portland. They're awesome. I also want to let people know um, that they can donate to the GoFundMe for Occupy ICE PDX, which primarily funds those relief funds for immigrants um, who have been inconvenienced by the shutdown of the ICE building. And I can send you that to include the link too. I know here in Buffalo, we have Justice for Migrant Families. They're doing a lot of work right now. We also have a lot of campaigns going on around Justin for Mig- Justice for Migrant Families around pushing legislation for immigrants to be able to have driver's licenses so that they don't feel like that's one more reason to be afraid of going out into society and living their lives. So I will link to that as well. A really good uh, direct action organization that's run by run by immigrants and, and people who are, you know, directly affected by this is Compañeros, Compañeros Inmigrantes de la Montañas en Acción. Um, and I can also link you the their Facebook page, which also has their donate, donate page. Yeah, here in Texas, I would say the North Texas Dream Team is, you know, uh, immigrant-led and does a lot of work around DACA specifically, but also uh, has a lot of people that reach out about needing funds and are are, are undocumented and, and it's been able to do with some type of like relief fund for them. So I can send you that link in Austin. Uh, grassroots leadership is at the forefront of confronting the detention centers that are the primary holders of, of undocumented immigrants here in this state. And um, they're a group that, again, has led a lot of direct action trainings, has been really in, uh, instrumental for us as far as knowing kind of how to establish some type of rapid response in in our area. And I think also I would mention groups like Workers Defense Project or the Equal Justice Center, because they are doing a lot of that community work to build community, to build empowerment um, within their membership who, um, you know, tend to run in, in, in mixed status circles, but they do a lot around wage theft. And um, that might not seem like it's related, but I feel like that's one of the primary issues that occurs within the undocumented community um, because they're they're constantly being taken advantage of um, when it comes to their wages. It's the, I guess, the easiest way that employers can kind of keep people in fear and keep people from, you know, engaging in this type of like direct action work even or from like coming out and talking to communities is because they're so ingrained in like making sure that they don't lose those wages. So, um, those are two other organizations that I would definitely recommend that need, you know, need the support, need the financial support, but also just should everyone should be aware of. Awesome. Thank you so much. Anyone else have any closing thoughts, things that didn't get covered that you wanted to get covered? I just want to say that all of you inspire me every day and I'm so grateful to know you. Right back at you. Right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like the prevailing trend. I have so many just like crushes on all these people that I, I mean, a lot of y'all I haven't even met, but just being able to see, and that's why I, I tend to go off on like this, like kind of, I am very public with like what I do and like who I am, maybe, you know, much to the, (laughs) to the anger of some people who are like, you're going to dox yourself. But honestly, (laughs) like that, that, that does feel like that is how I can use my privilege in a way, because I want to deconstruct this idea that being an organizer requires any type of like certain skill set whatsoever, or that you have to sit through some like immense training in order to do it. 
Um, I want to normalize it so much to where people just like anybody can be an organizer. Anybody has the capacity to do this. And there are so many ways to do it. And I just get so much like energy, really, like, that's how I stay fueled is by reading what other people are doing and like seeing it happen. And just also knowing that like, so many of the people that are out there doing it, like, probably have a bunch of other things going on. Mm. But that like that to me, it, it creates this other like somewhat online community to that that really kind of takes away from all the bullshit that we kind of face everywhere else. And um, I don't know, I, it's, it's motivating. And, and I think that we need that type of like, empowerment in in our in our circles, especially with DSA, you know, not always being on, on very stable ground when it comes to things online. But, um, you know, like just like being able to support and uplift each other goes a long way with just like moving past just like these internal dramatics and really kind of focusing on the fact that like, there are there's a lot of good work being done. And, and we need to celebrate that. And we need to, you know, do it in a way that reaffirms that this type of work is for everyone. Hell yeah. Well, thank you all so, so much. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners will really appreciate it. And you are all amazing. And I'm really, really grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks again to our incredible guests. Um, We will link to all of those um, organizations that they spoke about. As always, You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Season of the Bee. If you or someone you know is a musician that would like to hear their music featured on our show, please have them send us an email, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. We are having a live show, and it's going to be in New York City, August 11th at Star Bar. Tickets are on sale, so go to seasonofthebee.com. There's a whole spot for ticket sales. Uh, If you buy them now, it's mad cheaper, Um, $15 now, $20 at the door. So get them early, get them while they hot, and rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Believe that's it, but hey, you know, thanks for listening. Shout out to the rest of the coven. Love you guys. Bye.